ساده جای ورار کینشیه تلاش اینشله تجنی ایپاجشین اشیه ایدش چه بتنی ایدش نله Welcome to the Wind and Reason podcast, episode two. School. When I was younger, I was never a good student, meaning I just never did the homework. In the era of intermediate school, third through fifth grade, all I really cared about in those days were Pokemon cards, video games, and wondering if I'll ever obtain the sorcerer's ability to conjure up any potential willpower to speak to the opposite sex. Of course, without making a fool of myself, perhaps. My impressive knowledge of Pokemon cards will attract a suitable partner, so that I may bypass any actual romantic effort, which I had no knowledge of. Indeed, I could articulate the anguish of social and academic pressures with no end, and being bottom of the class at every activity, all while having a vivid imagination. You could take a wild guess and say I was an oddball, for some reason that I could not understand. I wore baggy orange cargo pants proudly, being chizzy, chubby, and dark. I at least had comfort in knowing that the friends I did obtain actually enjoyed my company, and not for any social advantage. Honestly, being my friend at this point would take you down a peg if you aspired to be popular. Fourth grade was probably the worst year in my intermediate experience. Starting out strong, turning in my homework on time, quickly devolved into never finishing the work at all. I really felt my teacher, who was an older non-native woman, favored only a few students and made you feel. Might I say less than in comparison to the other students? There was one particular instance I could not forget because this one moment there was no favoritism; everyone was equal. It all started on a day when our teacher went to speak to the principal about school matters, so she stepped out of class for about fifteen minutes. The kids in the class thought it would be fun to play a game. I cannot, for the life of me, recall what the game was, but I remember the kids running around and making a miss. I introvertly watched, awaiting my turn to participate. However, at the peak of craziness, our teacher came back into the room. She is startled at what she sees and tells everyone to calm down. Her words fall upon deaf ears. The kids were committed to this game, and when all attempts failed, she, at a full frustration, exclaimed, "You children are ignorant!" Whoa! What did she just say? I thought. For real though, what did she say? I'm a grammatically challenged Chizzy fourth grader. That word hasn't been properly cataloged into my brain yet, so I did some investigating. I picked up a dictionary and looked up I G ignore. Yes, I G N O R. There it is. Ignorant. It states destitute of knowledge or education, lacking knowledge or comprehension of the things specified, resulting from or showing lack of knowledge or intelligence. I repeat. Showing lack of knowledge or intelligence. I do not know why this moment is ingrained into my mind, as if it happened yesterday. This occurred in the year 2000. Yet I remember the snarl on her face as she said it, not as if she gave up on the class, but as if we were beyond redemption. Of course, my fourth grade brain may embellish some details, but it certainly felt that way. If I were to give grace. She may have been going through a lot of personal ish that we may not have been aware of, but the question still remains: Is this what education has to offer? Being rendered ignorant for simply being kids, or is it being res kids the problem? Is there a better way? How did we even get here? So let's explore its origin. It is often said that education for the Navajo people began with the Navajo Treaty of 1868. 
Article 6, which states, In order to ensure the civilization of Indians entering into this treaty, the necessity of education is admitted, especially of such of them as may be settled on said agricultural parts of this reservation. And they therefore pledge themselves to compel their children, male and female, between the ages of 6 and 16, to attend school. And it is hereby made the duty of the agent for said Indians to see that this stipulation is strictly complied with. And the United States agrees that every 30 children a house shall be provided and a teacher competent to teach the elementary branches of an English education. This article can be summarized in three points. One, the assurance of civility of the Indians. Two, the requirement for parents to coerce their children to attend school. And three, the promise that a competent teacher will be provided. At first read, every point on face value here are quite insulting. There is an assumed inadequacy and thereby rendering parents to be necessarily unfit to be both overseer and teachers of their own children. Admittedly, we can spend weeks dissecting the colonial impact this had had on the spirit of the people. The Wushdan podcast, hosted by Marley Lister, and his guest, Dr. Franklin Sage, covered this topic in the episode entitled Assimilation, Schooling, and Higher Education. Dr. Sage's personal experience is worth listening to and learning from, so head on over there and take a listen. In addition, Kendall Harvey's podcast, Returning to the Res, documents post-graduation journeys of three Diné scholars, which expands on contemporary insight on the challenges young academics face on the journey home. It is also worth checking out as Harvey offers his own analysis of that experience on his final episode. However, with this podcast, I want to decentralize the focus of education from Western methods and reaffirm Diné education in the context of our creation narrative. Once we explore the expanse of our story, we may then reformulate the practice of education to best suit the well-being of Navajo children in all generations thereon. Surely I am unable to condense the entire narrative in a single episode. So I'll focus on a few instances that will give us initial foundation for this worldview and purposes prescribed by the Indineh, the holy people. This will be part one of the education series, The Mind's Awakening. The meeting of first man, Al-Tzassin, and the first woman, Al-Tzassin, in the first world. I will be reading from the book Navajo Indian Myths, a transcription by Aileen O'Brien and published in 1993 and is an unabridged reissued republication of the book entitled The Diné, Origin Myths of the Navajo Indians, originally published in 1956. I feel it is important to provide context here. Eileen O'Brien recorded these stories in 1928 from the teachings of Sandoval, Hustin Tlotzehi, Old Man Buffalo Grass. He was one of four chiefs at the time. Given that he was an old man by the time these stories were recorded, we may assume he witnessed firsthand the installation of Western education and the shifting of Navajo life, and thereby compelled him to document these teachings for future generations. Sandoval states, You look at me, he said, and you see only an ugly old man, but within I am filled with great beauty. I sit as on a mountaintop, and I look into the future. I see my people and your people living together. In time to come, my people will have forgotten their early way of life unless they learn it from white man's books. So you must write down all that I tell you, and you must have it made into a book that coming generations may know this truth. Sandoval, for 17 days, delivered a stunning account of Diné legends, continually checking for correction by prayer and song. He knew this was important. This was meant to reaffirm the original identity and purpose of his people who were on the verge of losing everything. The following January, in 1929, he passed away. 
Therefore, let us listen to his response to the changing of times in Western education. If you have this book, I encourage you to bust it out, read along, and take notes. This is page two of the section, The Creation or Age of Beginning, The First World. First man stood on the east side of the first world. He represented dawn and was the life giver. First woman stood opposite in the west. She represented darkness and death. Before we move forward, I want us to ask, what is your first thought when hearing first man stands at the east and represents dawn and the life giver? And the first woman standing at the west representing darkness and death. If your initial reaction was first man essentially represents good because he represented life and first woman represented evil because she represents death, then we may have missed the point entirely. You see, dualism of good and evil or even this patriarchal slant that man is good and woman is evil was a foreign concept to our Dine ancestry. Sure, a form of good and evil exists in the narrative, but it is framed differently. And it certainly isn't the point of this excerpt. So what is the point? The storyteller here is contending very poetically that man and woman are complementary. The relationship is not socio-political. Rather, the relationship is cosmological. From dawn to darkness, from life to death, from the ends of the earth, man and woman are to be one just as creation is one. I have more to say on this in a later episode, so let's move on. First man burned crystal for fire. The crystal belonged to male and was a symbol of mind and of clear seeing. It was the mind's awakening. Let's understand the setting here. The first world is characterized by primordial mist and darkness. From every which way there is no appearance of order, nor is there expectation of the worlds to come. There is only chaos. The storyteller, Sandoval in this case, as a witness to the changing of times, sees his people enter into a state of chaos. The children are taken from their homes, taken from a tradition of beauty, and prostrated into a tradition of dominion. There is no expectation of worlds to come for the Dene. It is in this setting the storyteller proclaims, even in the midst of darkness, the mind can be awakened. Let's continue with the story. First woman burned her turquoise for fire. They saw each other's light in the distance. When the black cloud and white cloud rose higher in the sky, first man set out to find the turquoise light. He went twice, without success, and a third time, then broke a fork branch from his tree. And looking through the fork branch, he marked the place where the light burned. And the fourth time, he walked to it and found a smoke coming from a home. Here is the home I could not find, first man said. First woman answered, Oh, it is you. I saw you walking around, and I wondered why you did not come. Let's take a pause here. First of all, let's appreciate First Woman's sarcasm and her light spirit. Like most wives, she seemed to be quite entertained to watch First Man elaborately search for a fire that should be easy to find. You know, given that this first world is dark, he elaborately fails until the fourth time. The development of relationships should not be missed here. As you'll soon see, relationship precedes Navajo education. Let's continue. Again, the same thing happened when the blue cloud and yellow cloud rose higher in the sky. First woman saw a light and she went out to find it. Three times she was unsuccessful. But the fourth time she saw smoke and she found the home of first man. I wondered what this thing could be, she said. I saw you walking around and I wondered why you did not come to me, first man answered. I can't tell you how much I love this story. We find that the same curiosity first man had trying to find the fire, first woman also mirrors that curiosity. 
And just reading the story, I wonder if they ask questions. Where did she come from? What compelled him to look for me? I wonder if first man was secretly hoping, I hope she comes to me as well. I wonder if first woman also laughs to herself thinking about how cool first man thought he was trying to find a fire out in the open. There is a few crucial points here. First, this relationship is consensual. First man did not demonstrate any sense of entitlement. He didn't tell her she owes him anything. He didn't tell her to follow him anywhere. He didn't assume she was to be his wife. When he left to his own dwelling, the decision was completely up to her if she was going to see him again. Fortunately for us, she did. The second point is each person has a period of being lost. I want you to understand that your partner, your best friend, your spouse, your child, your parents, there will be a time when they are lost. And admittedly, in my own life, I had a period of being lost before I married my wife, but she had faith that I wasn't going to give up searching. It takes time for all of us to find our way, and when we do, it should be celebrated. For our children, we should tell them there is no demand for them to be perfect or for them to fit standards that are not our own. Yet there is an expectation that they never give up searching and learning. This is why relationship precedes education because education does not have intrinsic value unless it is in the context of and at the benefit of those we love. Because we pursue education, ask why education, and let your answer be, this is for my people, for my land, and for the holy ones. Before we finish the last section of the reading, let's circle back on the assertion that we are ignorant. The statement made by my fourth grade teacher, in all honesty, I believe that I was stupid. Every year of my general education, I maintained the assumption that I was insignificant. And any time I tried to progress, I received criticism that I was too imaginative, over the top, and wasn't following the prompt. It wasn't until college I stumbled upon the subject of philosophy and theology. I found it so fascinating and natural. This is what I was born for. Why didn't anybody tell me this? Why didn't any teacher ever tell me this was how my brain worked? Instead, I was held in low regard because I didn't follow their checklist on what constitutes a successful student. One of the most memorable days I had was when a professor and I had an extensive conversation. He asked me so many questions. And at the end of the conversation, looking into my eyes, he stated, You've been touched by fire. Well, what did this mean? Let's get to the last portion of the story. Let's continue to the top of page 3. First woman saw that first man had a crystal for a fire. She saw that it was stronger than her turquoise fire. And as she was thinking, first man spoke to her. Why do you not come with your fire and we will live together? The woman agreed to this. So instead of man going to the woman, as is custom now, the woman went to the man. This is a very powerful ending to the reading. First woman saw that first man had a crystal for fire, and she saw that it was stronger than her turquoise fire. According to the beginning of the story, the crystal represented what? The mind's awakening. She saw that the mind was very powerful, even more powerful than turquoise. Let's understand the context here. The storyteller, that being Sandoval, at this point of history, turquoise was an important part of currency for the Navajo people. 
among the promises of westernization is the excess of wealth. Navajos were given the illusion that if they give up their way of life, they may profit materially. However, First Woman is telling us, there is no amount of material wealth that can replace what is rightfully yours, your mind. I believe Sandoval saw his people starting to dress differently, speak differently, and began to accumulate non-essential items. All he is telling us is to never let any of this cloud your thoughts and to never forget who you are. I find this very interesting First Woman notices this. And it's not suggesting that she's incapable of possessing the crystal fire. In the very next sentence, it states, and she was thinking. She is clearly perceptual, thereby reading this as if first man had a privileged status is missing the point. I also find it fascinating that the spirit of first woman still lives within our mothers and grandmothers. It is always our moms that say, my daughter is smart. My son can think. My children make plans, even though we're all like, Chush, nay, <laughs> we think too little of ourselves, yet our mothers see a fire within us, an ancient fire, a fire that colonialism will never burn out. Therefore, I tell you, education for the Diné did not begin with the Navajo Treaty of 1868. Education for the Diné began in the first world when the first mind was awakened. Education was refined throughout every world. We did not need a treaty to remain civil. That is who we are inherently. We did not need a treaty to encourage school. We have a long tradition of school, just not within a building. We did not need a treaty to supply us with teachers. Our elders live to teach the younger ones. I wish I responded to my professor. Yes, I have been touched by fire, an ancient fire that lives within my people. The day is coming when the world will look for answers. They forgot who they are. They forgot what it means to be human. The day is coming when we see first man in the east. The sky will break, the minds will awaken, and all will be revealed. The day is coming when all creation will be restored. Behold, the earth's surface people will rise like the one most high whose ways are beautiful. This is our purpose. Now who got the net? Thank you for listening. That was episode two of the Wind and Reason podcast.